Hello, and welcome to Camp, Scary and Squee, a podcast that tests my theory that every horror movie exists on a scale of divine camp to pure terror. Each week I'm joined by a guest who brings a horror movie for discussion, dissection and classification on the Camp Scary scale. When asked what he's looking for in a horror movie, my guest today wants a believable plot, a strong female lead and a chilling film score. Welcome, Fraser. Hello, how are you? I'm great. And thank you so much for joining me. What is haunting you this week? I knew you were going to ask that. That's the one thing I probably haven't prepared. What is haunting me this week? We could probably talk about COVID. Oh, yeah? Is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, you're in Scotland, so you've just gone from a bit of freedom to a bit less freedom. Yeah, I think we got our hopes up <laughs> and they were quickly whipped away. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, we're, we're kind of anticipating further restrictions, probably going back to, I think, the R numbers through the roof again. Um, infection rates are uh, up and all the things that they've tried to reopen. They're now closing schools, businesses, uh, work from home as best you can, that type of stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's been challenging, to say the least. Yeah. Well, it's so we're sort of at the end. I'm in Melbourne, so we've just come out of quite a strict lockdown. We had a curfew and... For most of the past four or five weeks, it's been like an hour a day that we're allowed outside. Uh, it was extended to two hours like a week ago, and now we're we're sort of stepping out of it. So the curfew's been lifted. We can go out after 9pm, which is very exciting because <laughs> I live in an apartment and I have a dog. So her like timing her toilet times was becoming quite a struggle. <laughs> like, this is your last chance, Stella. Use it well. Uh, but yeah, it's sort of, it's been something that's probably haunting everyone in the world at the moment. And, and to varying degrees, of course. I mean, I think if you look at the rest of Europe, Spain uh, came out of lockdown, now straight back in. Italy, out of lockdown, straight back in. France, the same. So yeah, I think we are, we've been, um, about four weeks behind the curve of the European countries. And again, not much has changed and we don't seem to be learning much, uh, uh, you know, from, from their experience either, to be fair. Yeah, um, but it won't last forever. We need to keep reminding ourselves that. Yeah, that's right. Like you know, we're, we're sort of we're coming out at the other end now, and you know, I feel like it's it's good it's good to sort of focus on there is an end point. There's like an end that's coming in terms of being trapped in our homes. Um, I'm going to give you the honors. I'd love to know what film you've chosen for us to discuss this week. You know, again, I think we discussed prior to this that you know I have to say what. Of all the film genres, um, uh, horror's not necessarily at the top of my list, but it's a film I've rated for, a, you know, as long as I can remember the first time I watched it. I've seen it multiple times since, uh, and it's uh, John Carpenter's Halloween. Yes, and so some quick stats on Halloween. It is released in 1978, written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, and directed by John Carpenter, as you said. And starring, so top billing goes to Donald Pleasance, Jamie Lee Curtis, PJ Souls, and Nancy Loomis. And the film grossed $70 million on a $300,000 budget, which is, you know, phenomenal. Like, such a huge amount of money for a film to be making. And the IMDb description, which is the all-important, tells us what we're expecting. 15 years after murdering his sister on Halloween night, 1963, Michael Myers escapes from a mental hospital and returns to the small town of Haddonfield, Illinois, to kill again. And a spoiler warning, we're about to talk about this film, so you're probably going to find out some some of the stuff, the, the reveals, the, the spoilers, that you might not want to know if you haven't seen it before. So if you're listening to this and you haven't seen Halloween, pause the recording, go away, find Halloween on whatever provider you have, and watch it because it's well worth it. Now, for those of you play- for those of you playing at home, Fraser and I met many years ago, like nearly ten years ago. When, Maybe ten years, yeah. When I lived in Scotland, and it's quite funny because you have this deep love of film, and while so you say while you say horror isn't a genre that you love, I think a lot of the films that you love often fall somewhere in the horror genre because you love Alien, you love Halloween, these kind of big blockbuster films that 
while maybe not build exclusively as horror, like Jaws is another one, they they have horror elements, they have suspense, they have scares. And I'm wondering sort of what 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 is it that you love about these kinds of films? But again, if you look at the, 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 the top three, I mean, uh, maybe maybe not Jaws. Well, actually, Jaws, you could say, is a strong female lead because <laughs> she has a female shark. That's a bit of a stretch, I'll give you that. But certainly, uh, you know, one I mentioned was uh, Alien. Um, so you've got Shigourney Weaver playing Ripley. Uh, another, I would say, you know, is in that kind of, is it, isn't it a horror movie, is uh, Terminator. So you've got Sarah Connor, uh, played by Linda Hamilton. Uh, so again, that's, you know, uh, really strong female leads tends to be a bit of a theme. Um, really often a good soundtrack um, and, and that believable plot. But again, that evaporates when you talk about a, a shark that follows people around uh, over four films. Uh, when, you, when you've got aliens and uh, folk come travelling back in time, it begins to be a bit of a stretch. But certainly from a horror perspective, if it's going to freak me out, if it's going to, you know, I'm going to have to sleep with the light on for the next two weeks, to me, it's got to be believable. And I think that's maybe where a lot of the horror movies that I would class as a horror movie in, in its uh, you know, um, purest sense falls down for me. I kind of think, what well, a lot of nonsense. It's yeah. not my cup of tea. So for you, Halloween, I was going to say Halloween for you. Uh, an, an enduring <laughs> classic. I think they'll, they'll watch Halloween um, 100 years from now and I think it will still creep folk out. Um, that's how much of a fantastic film it's 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 ageless if that makes sense yeah no absolutely Uh, and it absolutely it is a classic um you know many people talk about halloween and and jamie lee curtis as this iconic screen queen and one of the the real originals because she's so enduring she's been in this franchise for so long and it has like it's i think by because they're making another film. It's it's soon gonna be like nine films that she's been in since nineteen seventy eight to current. There's another two to be released, uh, and I think due to COVID that might be sketchy. But uh, they're released within very quick succession, so I think it's maybe four or six weeks apart. And then that's uh, as they say the end of the franchise. I don't think there'll ever be an end of a franchise. I think they'll continue to reimagine. Um, the Halloween franchise in some regard um, uh, you know there's obviously been remakes etc yeah I think I think it, you know it's such a good movie it's allowed and some of the let's be honest some of the remakes or not the remakes but the sequels rather are pretty ropey <laughs> uh, so it's gone through a bit of a difficult journey but I think it's and I went to see the recent one Halloween um, and again Gina Lee Curtis features and actually it wasn't too shabby to be fair I don't think it's quite as loyal to the original as it could have been um, but yeah, I, you know, I think uh, that in of itself, I think there's been uh, so successful and it's led to, uh, is that you know, people, uh, for the same reasons I like it, must like it you know, in, in the same way. It's loved, actually, I think, amongst the horror community and for, uh, for good reason. If we get into the film, I thought one of the things we could talk about first, uh, and we'll, I'll, I'll try and talk through it in terms of the order of what happens, but this film opens in a way that, we have this extended opening credit sequence. So before we've seen anything, before they set up the film, the opening credit sequence really leans into the music that they're using. And John Carpenter wrote all of the music for this um, yep. on his own, I think using like a synth, um, which is incredible. And this opening music is just, it sets the tone in terms of this really sinister kind of thrilling film that's going to like, kind of hit you in that mark there's these clashing notes and it kind of that opening sequence of of all of these jack-o'-lanterns just uh, it's, in fact it's this jack-o'-lantern it's kind of this slow pan into the camera it's slowly slowly zooming in getting bigger and bigger and it kind of for me like watching that and i i was quite young when i watched this for the first time so watching it re-watching it now i look at that and i just think that really like primes you for what you're about to experience how, like how do you how does the music sort of open this for you? Does it have that kind of impact? I defy anyone to listen to the sound score in isolation and not be creeped out by it. It is chilling. It's, uh, you know, um, he's incredibly talented. And I think without the film score, it wouldn't be half the film. The film score is essential um, to building the tension and getting you to the point where um, you, you're, you're kind of, uh, you're uneasy. Uh, and again, you know, I, I challenge anyone 
to listen to it. Maybe start at like 12 noon, so it's nice and light, <laughs> and, and then work up to watching it at 12 midnight. Uh, but yeah, it creeps me out to this day. It really is a chilling, chilling soundtrack. Well, it's a soundtrack that when you watch horrors, like modern horror, you hear the the kind of the style of it is or like people are always trying to capture it, particularly in these kinds of slash it films where it is that you 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 know, and this came from Hitchcock who who famously had the the sort of sharp violins aligned like lined up to the stabbing of the knife. And so you never had to see the stabbing. You just had to note like the music told us what was happening. Um and this really sort of harkens back to that, but innovates it and makes it even more kind of sinister and bigger and the music I think for this film is a really defining element and it takes us to this opening shot um which I think it's a four minute long point of view shot and I must admit that when I first saw this film the the sort of reveal at the end of this four minutes was already spoiled for me so I knew what was coming um but so did you like, did you, the first time you watched this, did you know that that was Michael Myers as a little boy walking through? No. And I think to be fair, I don't think I ever saw the full movie and, and you know, I saw bits of it as a, uh, you know, as someone in their maybe uh, early teens. So you're kind of seeing snapshots of, of clips or bits, or um, I was probably towards my late teens before I saw it in its entirety. Um I was blissfully unaware of the, the kind of background that for me makes the plot even more believable. This isn't, uh, you know, someone that comes from, you know, I, I always, poor Freddy Krueger, but I always seem to choose Freddy or Jason of the two I tend to pick on. But for me, uh, you know, I, I just switch off because I'm just, this is so far-fetched and so unbelievable. But, you know, the, the plot is based on reality. You know, people who are uh, particularly unhinged um, you know, uh, are um, currently within mental health uh, establishments at the moment and hopefully receiving the treatment that they will require. But uh, there will come a point where uh, someone uh, drops the ball or procedures haven't been tightened or, and, you know, something like this will happen again. And that's to me what makes it believable. And, you know, uh, it's not the, the, the kind of Freddy that, you know, come, clog come up through the bath because you've fallen asleep for 30 seconds. Yeah. You know? um, th- this is something that could happen in your neighbourhood tonight. Uh, and that's the bit that's extra creepy. And I suppose, you know, we've got, we've got to remember it was 1978 and, uh, you know, uh, certainly within the UK, uh, you would have had three TV channels. Those TV channels would have switched off at, what, uh, half 11, 12 o'clock at night. So, you know, we didn't have the same access to uh, movies in the way we do now. Uh, you know, I would imagine VHS and Betamax, if they were around, were very early on in the revolution so you know movies weren't really about at the time and i think to see a six-year-old and and you know um again that's the bit that's the reveal you're talking about is Mm. where michael myers is unmasked and the view changes to to that of michael to that of his parents and you see this six-year-old um almost standing in a daze with the 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 knife i think that would have uh, i mean it's i think it's still quite shocking now if you were to see it for the first time but i think to have seen it in 1978 would have been particularly uh, dare I say, provocative. I think, you know, people have been really quite challenged by that uh, and that would really mess with their mind because I just don't think anything was out there of that style, substance. So I think it pushed the boundaries to some degree in terms of what had been shown in the big screen to that stage. Um, Definitely. And quite groundbreaking is the term I'd use. Yeah, and it's quite interesting that the, particularly for this scene, so we sort of, it's all point of view, it's a single shot and we sort of see... Uh, uh, Michael's sister Judith and a boy get getting sort of a bit hot and heavy, and then they go upstairs for what is a very brief encounter because, like, he walks around, gets a knife, and the guy's already coming downstairs. So it's like, I know that was short. <laughs> um, but did, I watched that with my partner, and we both commented on that. To be fair, <laughs> that was a very quick yeah, it was just like he's already, but, but I, you know, the. They had to get Judith alone. Um, so I guess that was the reasoning. Uh, but it it really, like, I, I wonder how it got past senses. I know 1978, there was a lot more scary horror. They were really breaking a lot of barriers. The, the sort of the restrictions of old Hollywood had 
really were falling away in a lot of ways. There were still lots of hangovers of them, but you could do a lot more than you used to be able to do. But they, they're still very careful in terms of how they show, like, stabbing. And particularly for this scene, you kind of see the knife moving, but you never quite see, like, you never see the child doing it. You sort of, it's always from this point of view. And also, you never quite see any kind of knife going into flesh kind of stabbing. And I wonder if that's how they got away with it, because it feels like something they should have, they that they shouldn't have gotten away with at that time, like with the sensibilities and even even with the kind of horror advances that were being made in the 70s and the 80s, it was really like pushing the limits of it. I think certainly, I mean, you've touched upon it, but I mean, let's be honest, the, the, the murder scenes are not, they're not gory in the slightest. It's all very suggestive. It's very, um, and there's, there's a lot of in the soundtrack and it's all there, but it, you don't actually see much. Um, and, and certainly from the, you know, the, the initial sort of four minute uh, when uh, Michael is uh, killing his sister and, and putting a, a number of sustained, uh, you know, blows with a knife, you see nothing. It's a very... She puts up very uh, little defence as well. I have to say, there's it's almost like oh, it's a, a you know yeah, to a six year old uh, ready ready for her death. You know she prepared for it. So again, it's you're absolutely right. Uh, there's that element of it's what you don't see, uh, and I think that's that's a theme throughout the film, which allows your mind to make up its own mind if that makes sense. And often uh, that's worked for you know um, directors uh, you know across a range of movies over the years. You know we've mentioned Jaws. Uh, uh, Spielberg had planned to put the shark in a lot more because it looked so wooden and plastic and cardboardy. Uh, a lot of the footage that he planned to put in was on the, the, the cutting floor, uh, and invariably, um, that's what makes Jaws, uh, certainly in my mind, a fantastic film. It's it's under the water. It's all suggestive. It's and and that's what builds the tension. And I think that's what works for uh, John Carpenter and, and Halloween as well. It's it's quite interesting because and I, in previous episodes of this podcast, I've discussed this, but. Often, the more you reveal, the more it shifts from from terror into camp. So when you get something that's really gory or like it starts to sort of verge on ridiculous, it starts to be funny, it starts to be silly, it starts to sort of be self-aware and, and almost making fun of itself. And by, I think the best scary movies always hold a bit back and give you that kind of like, let your imagination do the final bit of the work. So, again, if we were to try and think of a film that was in the complete other extreme, so, uh, again, within horror genre, I would maybe think of a film like Hostel or Saw, the Saw franchise. Let's be, you know, frank, they're so unapologetically gory. Uh, in fact, they're deliberately gory to, you know, evoke a reaction. I don't find that entertaining. That doesn't... Uh, well, I... I don't find that scary or uh, on the edge of the seat. I'm kind of probably a bit you know that's not a, you know nice to look at or appropriate but i don't find it entertaining yeah it's funny like something like saw or hostel i don't sit there like waiting for the jump i i sort of i watch it and i know what's going to happen and it's almost that thing of because they often pay off with the you know they it they set suspense and then they pay off suspense and maybe if they kept a bit of mystery it would be a bit more scary but it's all of it, it is that kind of gore porn that they do where they and, and I th- there's almost a bit um, and i certainly think certainly in 1978 i don't think that they would have been able to because i don't think the techniques were quite there but i think if you'd gone down the gory route it would have made it a bit more of a caricature in the film it would have lessened the tension uh because actually but you know you and i would probably do a better uh job now uh, with a camera phone in 2020 than they would have ever done in 1978 with a ketchup bottle and you know where I'm yeah. coming from. And I think actually um, the fact that it has it has meant that it's been a lot, uh, you know, it stood the test of time much more uh, because the techniques used back then were pretty ropey, but of their time. After this initial setup and, and we sort of get this, Michael Myers is this criminally insane child. Uh we we cut to what is present day 1978 with uh, his psychiatrist, Dr. Samuel Loomis, and a nurse, Marion Chambers, as they drive to collect him for a hearing. And I think what's really interesting in this scene is we kind of see the, a system 
that he's work he's within and and that system is sort of working through to to assess him and to look at you know do they release him and his psychiatrist is very much saying well this is a formality we need to get him there in order to get him locked away for longer and the nurse almost challenges him or or like you know subtly criticizes him for for his kind of lack of of care to rehabilitate michael um but he very much says you know i, I did care for 7 years and then eight, another 8 years on top of that it, i felt i found that i couldn't i couldn't help him and we get this this sort of is to get us to the inciting incident of this film which is that uh we get to the uh, sanatorium and all of the patients are, are out and he's, they're very concerned. He goes to get in the gate and Michael Myers gets on the roof and attacks uh, Marion, the nurse. Doesn't kill her, like breaks through the glass and uh, is attacking her, but really his purpose is to get in the car. And he um, speeds off and suddenly that kind of sense of, well, something's happening, you know, this film is about to get moving where is he going? What is he doing? That's all kind of kicked off for us. And we very quickly after that meet Laurie, who is Jamie Lee Curtis, who is our protagonist, our leading lady, our screen queen for this film. What about that introduction of Laurie, do you think kind of sets her up as this kind of character that we want to follow, we want to support, that the, the type of character that gets to survive? Well, again, you know, having uh, you know, done some reading about it, there's the, the the element of, and I suppose I'm kind of skipping ahead slightly, but there's a whole bit of, you know, uh, those who have lost their virginity buy it or, you know, uh, peg it at some point during the film. And, uh, you know, good old Laurie, who's this, you know, sort of um, very um, academic, uh, you know, very illustrious, uh, you know, very hardworking, studious uh, character, uh, has kind of broken the mould of some of her pals. She's not smoking pot she's not uh you know got she a, does a smoke some pot doesn't she exchange. what's that sorry she does smoke pot in the car she, she, she? Has a, she has a she has a quick uh spliff in the car doesn't she but uh, again it's uh th- there's a suggestion that she's um different to her peers i feel um even even the the way she dresses um to, to some degree uh is and i suppose maybe if this was a know uh, males might not be talking about how they dress but she's quite frumpily dressed i would suggest uh, but of See, course it's the 70s um whereas i think her her other female counterparts are a bit more pro- provocatively dressed if that makes sense you certainly see a lot more flesh uh from her friends throughout the film that you maybe don't see um with uh, laurie um but yeah there's a curiosity you begin to almost uh, you know you see the the child that she begins to, or is planning to babysit later that night. Um, and again, um, as uh, Michael uh, begins to, or he arrives at Haddonfield, uh, begins to stalk Laurie. So he's, he's shown an interest because again, I think the, the loose element is her parents are selling the house, his old house that's not been lived in since 1963, uh, etc. And she, I think, posts a key through the front door. And that's the tenuous link that then means he's now locked his sights on Laurie and plans to, uh, you know, do the deed, so to speak. See, this is this is quite interesting. And I, I won't go too much into it because uh, in a previous episode, we covered Scream and we talk about the rules of horror and we talk about sort of where they come from. And there is this sense that under the um, Hayes Code, which was a moral code that was governing Hollywood for a long time, as that code came out, as it sort of phased out, one of the ways that directors would get particular types of characters over the line is that they would be punished for their sins or they would be, you know, put forward as depraved. You know, you look at Norman Bates in Psycho and the cross-dressing is sort of then punished as, well, he's mentally ill because they want to discourage that in society. Uh, the same can be said for the promiscuous woman always dying in a horror film and often dying first is this kind of, you know, a way to say, well, we're putting this character in there, but we're showing the consequences of living a sinful, and I use like inverted commas for that, um, a sinful life. Um, and I feel like this movie really kind of leans into those tropes. 
and potentially because it is 1978 and they're still kind of finding their way out of it or it could be that this is something that really kind of resonates with the psyche of the killer like michael myers decided to kill his sister after she had sex and we see that um we see annie later who dies you know her death is she's off on her way to get meet her boyfriend we also see it with i'm forgetting her name linda who has sex and then dies as does her boyfriend and these kind of rules that kind of follow horror are quite sort of embedded and i feel like these this film in particular is one that served to embed that further um as we kind of move forward through this we get a few kind of foreshadowing moments i think the big one is there's the break-in at the hardware store and they stole a halloween mask and a kitchen knife uh which and i I get you know uh, it wasn't towards the very tail end of the movie that um again laurie unmasks Mm. uh, uh, michael myers for a fleeting second and uh, i then questioned why uh, in fact he was wearing a mask at all and it's been bugging me for a couple of days since since watching the film i was kind of why did he need to wear a movie a mask in the movie of course, it adds tension. There's no emotion. He becomes almost robotic. Mm. Um, uh, so I suppose a bit like the Terminator, he shows no emotion. He's this kind of the person that you know shows ultimate strength and blah blah blah. Um, but I guess for me, I've kind of come to terms with it as he was trying to le- relive um, the dressing up and because again, Michael, when he committed the first murder in 1963, uh, was wearing a clown mask. So maybe in some way, he's trying to relive the previous murder, and hence why he's put the mask on. I guess I'm giving John Carpenter an out uh, <laughs> and allowing him that one. Uh, but that was one question I had asked myself while watching it was, well, why is he wearing a mask at all? Well, yeah, well, I wonder even if it's it's his kind of, his battle garb, like he's trying to, mm. he, he, you know, this is a terrible comparison, but, you know, Beyonce is Sasha Fierce on stage. Uh, Michael Myers needs his mask in order to perform. You know, it's something that, is very much in the human condition that we we wear different masks. You know, when you go to work, you act different to how you act at home. When you're with your friends, you're different to how you are with your parents. And we have these masks in life, and maybe this is his kind of mask for what he does, which is murdering particularly young women um, who are babysitters. So what, one thing I'm desperate to try and get in uh, during this podcast is that the element of trivia around his mask. I'm not sure if you were planning to cover it or um, you're even aware. But Oh, I, um, I think I know where this is going. <laughs> so um, my understanding, and I have to say, this is probably leaning more towards my interest. I'm a real science fiction fan, a real Trekkie, love Star Trek, love Star Wars. Uh, my understanding is uh, that the mask is uh, actually a William Shatner Halloween mask, uh, which they've effectively taken all the, the colourings off and, and painted white. Um, they have, and they stretched it out a bit as well. After uh, you know, I'd watched it, and again, adds another kind of element of campness to it. Now that you watch that, it almost takes away the, the villain-esque, murder-esque kind of element to it. Now that you know that it's a William Shatner mask, uh, to me, that's an element of campness in itself. Do you know? Well, uh, it is, and it's um, I think quite quite fun that this is this this film that you know made all this money is this huge cultural hit. And the thing that's most recognisable about it was like $2 and like a makeup artist spray painted it and stretched it out a bit or like, or a props, a props artist, I should say. And, um, you know, we, we spend now, particularly now we spend so much money making movies and sort of these overwrought effects that don't always land and age very quickly. Cause if you're going to use any kind of CGI, anything digital, you are basically putting a, this is, this movie is this old and you will immediately two years down the track, be able to go, Ooh, that doesn't look good. And there's so much power in just leaning into, here's like something physical we found, we bought for two bucks. We like did a bit of DIY on it and created possibly the most iconic horror mask in history uh, absolutely I, and again often i think uh you know big budget doesn't necessarily equal good film and i'm sure we've seen lots of uh, examples of that but i think you know uh we certainly went through the late 90s early 2000s where cgi was a really prominent element of 
filmmaking. It was, you know, uh, actors talking to tennis balls and then the sticks, uh, etc. And to me, that uh, lessened the movie. It made it less believable, certainly from my perspective, because uh, the, the eye doesn't lie. What you see on the screen, if it doesn't cast the shadow or it's, you know, if it's CGI, it's CGI uh, it often doesn't age as well. Um, and I don't think actors react with it in the same way. Uh, so often, you know, you don't need a huge budget to make a, a fantastic film. And no better example than of that than, than Halloween, I think, uh, having made so much money for what is a very low budget uh, independent movie. Uh, and again, you know, reading all these different sequels, it tells a, a story in of itself. It's also, so I, I teach film studies. I also teach media production at a, a university. And it's one of the things I really push with students who sort of will come to a unit like, oh, I want to make a short film, but I don't have enough money. And it's, I often will push them in the direction of horror and say, well, you don't need a lot of money to be scary. Look at the greats, look at Hitchcock and how often he never quite told you what was going on, how, how much he hid, how much was suggestion. You know, he, he, he himself has this, this great kind of lecture that he does about the, the idea of if you place a bomb, then you have just created tension and fear in everyone. If you, if everyone sees you place a bomb, they are all waiting for it to go off. You don't have to set the bomb off in order to scare them. You've already scared them. You're building that tension. You can, you can break it in a different way. So there, there is this great thing you can do without any money with, with horror that you can just create and, and build tension. And you, you can just use formal techniques like, like cinematography and music and build something that, is properly scary you don't need special effects you don't need corn syrup you don't need uh you don't need to spend money on creating monsters because we all create monsters in our head it's mm. yeah no, absolutely we should keep moving uh throughout the day in this day and i should be noted this this film takes place basically in a day if you discount the initial uh, scene with Dr. Loomis and the nurse. This is a day, uh, one yep, day and one hours, night. Yeah. And we are getting to know Annie, but we're also getting to see Myers stalking her. Um, and it's probably a good point to talk about in later films, there's a revelation that Annie, sorry, not Annie. What am I saying? Uh, Laurie is adopted. Laurie. Um, and that she's actually Michael's younger sister. I don't know if do you do you subscribe yeah, to this? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, again, that's where it becomes the, the kind of believable element then begins to evaporate. Uh, it's almost like they, they they felt they had to have this tenuous link to. Uh, I mean, surely the link would have been that she was. Are you with me? She would have been there anyway, and uh, that would have been a link in of itself. There's almost this insistence that there has to be. Um, a, a, a written down it has to be somewhere in the script someone has to say what the link mm. is and um, you know people can't reach that conclusion uh themselves i mean again uh michael myers you mentioned steals the car from the sanatorium uh the night before um and again you see dr loomis uh in the early morning at the, at the sanatorium interact with someone and mention that he must have been taught to drive or you know uh because, because it's almost like they've, they've went okay there's a loophole here let's cover that off so they've scripted in yeah someone in the sanatorium's trotting to drive and there's a kind of lot of that um uh, you know and uh, the sequels that kind of uh there's a compulsion to have to fill a loophole when actually uh, audiences will fill that themselves. You know, people well, who it also, really begin to buy into a genre, uh, actually, the more loopholes you have, sometimes that's why people are addicted to it, because they begin to fill the gaps themselves. Well, and it creates discussion and debate, and it's it's what creates kind of your subculture of, of people who, who um, you know, want to to understand that film. And, and debate is great. Like, they should really encourage it. I, I'm with you. Like, they could have left that open. They could have left a lot of things open. Um they could have revealed that Lindsay was adopted. I can't, I'm not getting anyone's names right today. They could have revealed that Laurie was adopted uh, and not, not revealed that it was Michael. We could have said, Oh, she must be Michael's little sister. And you know, the parents, you know, the parents must have died or they could have left that open in later films and let us kind of have those discussions and draw those conclusions. 
Um, what we get to next, though, is that everyone's babysitting. Annie's uh, looking after Lindsay, who that child actor has so much sass. I really enjoyed her. <laughs> <laughs> um, she just did not. She gave, had zero fucks to give about Annie. <laughs> she was just like, I just want to watch That's TV. <laughs> <laughs> um, Laurie is looking after Tommy. And we we very quickly, you know, Michael starts to obsess over and to to follow follow Annie, and he's, he's kind of watching her through the window. I wonder if this is because she's the one that yelled at him when he sped past, and she said "speed kills," and then he stopped, and he went like that brought his focus onto her as someone connected to Laurie, but also someone that had kind of given him a reason to like. I'm going to focus on you. You're the next to die. Um, she she goes through a very strange process. So she's on on the phone. I love this idea that all these people are babysitting and they just ring each other and chat um, to pass the time while they're looking after these kids. But she spills something on herself and immediately just strips off and puts on what I assume is the father of that house's business shirt. Definitely asked that myself. Definitely asked that myself. Uh that was a bit random. And again, it didn't appear that she spilled anything particularly drastic on her, you know? No. Um, it was wasn't a vat odd. of soup or a, do you know what I mean? It was a, a bit of tea by the looks of it. And to strip off to her tiny whiteies, I thought was a bit extreme. She's out in the laundry and it gives Michael another opportunity to kind of taunt her a bit. Like he, he's sort of, the door's closing, he ends up locking the door and she gets trapped in there. And she's calling out to little Lindsay for help, but Lindsay can't hear her. And it's only when the phone rings and uh, Annie's boyfriend, Paul, is asking for her and Lindsay goes out and finds her sort of stuck in the window. She's kind of her foot's trapped in something and, and Lindsay has to get her out and she runs back so she can tell Paul that she got stuck in the window, which I really loved because it's like, this little girl who's clearly just doesn't like her babysitter is a bit over it and is just like, I just want to watch movies. And this lady is just ruining my night. And she runs back to the phone and she goes, she got stuck in the window <laughs> before she hands over the phone, which I just loved. But it gets us to this point where we can, it sounds terrible to say, we can finally see a death in the film. Uh, so, uh, Annie's going to go pick up her boyfriend. She drops Lindsay with, with Laurie for the babysitting duties. And when she goes to her car, Michael pops up behind her and strangles her, uh, which personally I found quite interesting because he is billed as a slasher and there are a couple of people that he doesn't stab. Like, you know, he's got this kitchen knife, unless I miss something, but I've seen it a few times and I've. I feel like it's it's purely a strangling death. Yeah, I, th I think that came later. And I think, again, going back to the very original four minutes, um, the slasher-esque bit is probably the bit that folk... I've seen, they might not have seen the full film, but they've seen the first four minutes. And that's, you know, this, you know, sort of uh, blade. And a lot of the subsequent posters and references for the sequels often had a knife. Mm. In fact, the... Uh, uh, the kind of beveled edge of the knife was the beveled edge of your, you call it a jack-o'-lantern, I would call it a pumpkin, but what uh, was the kind of second half to the pumpkin was a, was a you know, a, a beveled edge of a knife. So there's a lot of suggestive imagery on the, the, the kind of film posters and things. Um, but again, if you watch a lot of the, the sequels, um, Michael has, uh, and you could attribute it to his uh, mental health, uh, but has significant strength, probably more strength than, uh, a, a nor I hate to use the term normal, but um, you know, so, someone like perhaps you and I, yeah, uh, you know, in terms of normal sort of body strength, uh, because of his uh, mental abnormality or ill health, he has uh, significant strength and uh, again is able to overpower, uh, you know, quite a, a strapping young teenage lad. You know, yeah, uh, he lifts him in, by in his thumb. by his throat and and yep, like up yep. to the wall with one arm. Uh, one thing, sorry, you just made me think of something when you said you call it a jack-o'-lantern and we call it a pumpkin. We don't celebrate Halloween in Australia. Well, do you know, interestingly, <laughs> it's, uh, if you rewind in Scotland to about 30 years ago, 
it was something we we used to call it guising. In fact, a lot of people still do. And Halloween was uh, taken to America by the Scots. It's a it's a Scottish celebration uh, that, that Scotland celebrated. That uh, you know, uh, but again, uh, in the late nineties, uh, ASDA, which is a supermarket in in um, in the UK, was bought over by Walmart. Ah, right. Walmart, Walmart started this. Um, October um, you know, supermarket war where they were all selling kids outfits and you know all your sweet treats that you hand out for trick-or-treat and almost overnight I would say within about five years Halloween went from not to 60 in Scotland and, and it's and certainly in the UK and it's now a very big cultural celebration but it was always in Scotland uh, you know kids would go out guising and you know, we would call it guising. You would chap the door. You wouldn't say trick or treat, but you would you would be offered asked in with your uh, your costume, and you'd be asked to do a turn, is what we call it in Scotland. <laughs> and you would say a joke, or you might sing a song, or you you would do a turn, and you'd be rewarded for your turn uh, by maybe an apple or a, you know a tangerine or a satsuma, uh, some monkey nuts, and then you'd be given a kick up the backside and shown the door. Um, and that's where this kind of uh, you know, uh, celebrations come from. So yeah, Americans stole it from us in Scotland. Well, so so what's interesting is, so my only reference to Halloween was from American kind of television and film until I lived in Scotland and then I sort of saw that it was celebrated somewhere else. But in recent years, like I'd say the last 10 years, there has been this kind of creeping celebration of Halloween in Australia. Uh, not that we ever celebrate it, but we have had a few instances where people have shown up at our front door and we're like, what are you doing? We don't have any. <laughs> We've not quite got the trick or treat bit yet. No. It'll come. And I'll tell you why it'll come because it's got a big price tag. I mean, um, mm. in terms of um, the economy, um, if you're a supermarket uh, and you can, because again, I would imagine for most cultures, October's a bit of a dead month. Um, maybe dead months are not right, the best word to use for Halloween, but it's a bit of a low month in terms of getting folk through the door and selling stuff. So you can, uh, you know, um, sell a lot of uh, crap that you don't need in the hope that someone might then uh, shovel it down kids' necks as they come round the door and do their turn. <laughs> uh, so Annie dies in this car and um, young Tommy is looking out the window. He looks out the window a lot because I feel like he's seen Michael a few times. He's worried and he sees Michael carrying Annie back into the house. And it's, there is this thing in horror films, like children often see things that others don't. Um, It's almost like they're more observant. They're like less cynical about the world and they're kind of wanting to look around. Um, But of course, Laurie kind of calms him down very quickly sort of gets back into a let's eat some popcorn and watch a movie kind of mindset. And she, then Linda and Bob come back. Um, I was intrigued by, is it Linda's house that Annie's babysitting at? Like, why did Linda show up at this house? Or is that just something that people did? I feel like that'd be like a great breach of trust to invite your friends over to a house that you're babysitting at. Yeah, again, that's a definite loophole that's not scripted for. <laughs> it's not like, oh, yeah, maybe one of you, are, you know, he's been taught to drive. It's not along those lines. Uh, I did question that. Uh, well, because also they then, a list, you they, know? they then go have sex in this house, <laughs> which is like, God, I hope you uh, live and, there. And, of course, if you were the parents returning at 11 o'clock to, you know, sort of uh, sex, you, you would not be best pleased knowing that, you know, uh, a power of shagging had gone on. You know, I think that's... Uh, a definite, and it probably goes back to what you were talking about earlier on about this kind of moral code, this kind of Halloween moral code in some way. Do you know, yeah. I think that kind of very much falls into that trap. Well, Michael is not happy about that, and uh, we we very quickly have Bob is personally. I think this is the best death of the of the film. Just I I I like that it's um it sort of it goes to what Myers is about, you know, it uses his weapon of choice, the kitchen knife, but it also, um, that strength that he demonstrates where he lifts Bob up by his throat and then, and then stabs him. And then the cleverness of what he does next, where he puts on 
the Halloween costume and Bob's glass. It's Bob's glasses, I think. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. And then he goes back to the room to uh, kill Lindsay, but uh, sorry, kill Linda. The names are too similar in this film because it's Lindsay, <laughs> Linda, Laurie. <laughs> Every time I was like writing, I'm like, hold on, which name is that? Um, and we get this great kind of interaction between them where she doesn't know it's Michael. She thinks it's Bob and she's kind of flirting with her killer and then turns her back on him to go call Laurie and say, you know, talk to her. And he takes the she phone call. With the, the, yeah, the call. Yeah. And wraps it around her neck and it gives Laurie this kind of something's wrong. I need to go over there. And I think this is, this is where it gets scary. So for me, this is not a scary film from a, like, I don't get scared in it because there's kind of tension and it's sinister, but we're sort of always seeing things from Michael's point of view. We see a lot of what he sees. So I'm not kind of, I'm not sitting there like waiting for the thing to jump out at me. I kind of know what's coming, but this is the one scene where you get that. I think for me, when he wears the bed sheet and he's now a ghost with the glasses on, and um, that adds a different dimension to the film because the audience are aware that um, Myers is under the bed sheet um, dressed as this ghost. But of course, the intended victim, uh, mm. Linda, is it Linda? Have I got that right? Yes. Yes, you yes. do. It's so, Linda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's far too similar. But again, Linda uh, now, um, buys it. Uh, but we know. Again, I think the film's quite prescriptive. Uh, there's an inevitability about it. Um, uh, we know that it's got, but you, because you know that adds to the tension, you really, you know, I can imagine audiences, I've never seen it in the cinema. It would be great to go and see it in the cinema, but I'm sure when folks saw this for the first time, be shouting at the screen or, you know, I've, yeah. I've, I've sat in, in a, on many a couch and watched it and your friends have shouted at the screen, now get out, run, you know, all these kind of uh, things that you, you're desperate to shout to poor Linda, who we know is going to peg it very shortly. And that, for me, is the tension builder. That's the bit that really adds the, uh, I might not sleep tonight, and if I do, it's with the light on. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's it's that thing we, we as, I, as we were talking about earlier with Hitchcock, you know, we tell the audience more than we tell the characters and let the audience feel the tension, um, which is always, it, it's such a great way to to give, like, to make them uncomfortable and give them something to kind of squirm about. Um. And he, sorry, Laurie, I'm going to get their names wrong for this whole thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Laurie goes across and she finds Annie very artfully splayed on the bed. And with the headstone. Yes, with the headstone, uh, with Judith's system, headstone. Yeah. Oh, I almost forgot. That is, again, like, I'd love to know the motivation behind that headstone for Annie. Is it, what's he trying so, to say? So, uh, you so paint the scene. You you phoned your friend. You've heard her gargle and in. You're curious enough that you're going to go over. You can't get in the front door, so you go round to the back door. The back door is ajar. You stick your head in the door and you call your friend's name. You can't hear her. Personally, I wouldn't be going any further. And I guess this buys into the audience of shouting, the, "What are you doing? Why are you going? Don't go upstairs and you know, don't go up here and don't do this and you know." That builds the tension. That helps. Uh, you know, we know what's coming. We know what's going on in the house. Well, and this uh, is the first Laurie time. Is still naive enough to want to go and find further. Do you know? Yeah, and this is the first time that I'm like waiting for a jump scare in this, and it it, it delivers. Like we we get oh absolutely delivers. Yeah, we we get this. Um, not only does she find any, then she's finds other body. Like she finds Linda and and Bob's bodies sort of in closets and cupboards and oh hold on does bob fall down bob bob um has i think his legs in some way are like above yes yeah he falls down and he kind of swings down through almost like the the lower half of his torso or the upper half of his torso is upside down and swings into sight yes that's the first jump scare Uh, but then she opens a cupboard or something doesn't she and of course her friend linda has been stowed away um or not, I think it was Linda, or maybe it was one in the car. One of the no, it was definitely no, Linda. It was Linda, and it he was Linda. on the bed. She yeah. stowed away in a cupboard, and then that's the bit you see uh, Michael 
he's turned her back. Why on earth she's still standing there, we still don't know. Um, I would have been long gone. You would have not seen me for dust. But you see Michael very slowly pan into shot, very subtly. You see the mask. You obviously don't see his dungarees, etc., because they're quite dark. But you see that mask, that iconic mask. Mm. And for me, that's the icing on the cake. You've had the jump scare, as you call it. Uh, but then the audience is aware that he's behind her and he's going to strike any minute. And of course, he strikes with what is quite a pathetic glancing blow with the blade and she manages to make off. She makes off, but uh, she falls down the to... stairs and she. we get this great kind of scene where she's running and he's chasing her. And, you know, she can't get out of the back door. He's kind of wedged it shut with the rake. He ends up breaking through uh, one of the doors. She breaks the glass so that she can get out. Um, and it is this, that kind of slow creeping horror that he is. He never runs. He kind of- No, it's very deliberate and uh, self-assured and mechanical. Robotics, a term I've used already. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, emotionless. Because uh, again, he's playing this mentally deranged individual who, uh, you know, wouldn't maybe display or, or feel the same emotions you and I do. Um, yeah, that that really is drawn out at that stage where uh, you know he's not running to catch her or quieting her. Or he's quite happy for her to scream and cry for help, and uh, as she's running through the street. Uh, and interestingly, nobody comes to her assistance. No, it's quite a quite a well, Doctor... Nobody seems to come to her assistance. We haven't talked about it. Doctor Loomis is in town, like looking for Michael, and doesn't hear all this screaming in this small, quiet town. But she she's at the door. She can't get in, and she gets she calls to Tommy, who is very annoyed for a child who like <laughs> slowly comes down and lets her in. She comes in, uh, Tommy and Lindsay, she gets them to hide and she ends up hiding. Uh, oh no, he comes into the house and she stabs him with the knitting needle, uh, which I thought was funny because she was knitting earlier, wasn't she? Was she? Or was I it just a needle in the house? I didn't spot that. I didn't spot the knitting needle. I feel like I it would be very, I feel like it would be very like, aligned to her character to be like, maybe, like <laughs> no, maybe I've just imagined it. Something, yeah, that's it. <laughs> uh, but she gets him and then she, she runs upstairs and hides in one of the closets and, and sort of waits for him. And he, he breaks through sort of blindly grabbing turns on the light, which I always love in horror films when it's like, we need someone to turn on a light so that we can see what happens. <laughs> so they're just like, create create a reason for a light to come on um and she's again uh, the the for me the closet is the most flimsy it's one of those kind of yeah. you know, slats kind of thing which you could immediately put a foot through or an arm through and you know destroy and particularly given his size and strength he should have annihilated it but he takes a good sort of two minutes to to get through what is an incredibly flimsy closet <laughs> he really does doesn't but he, he? Gets there he and does. Then, course, she arms herself with a, a coat hanger. Uh, one, one of the kind of wire coat hangers you would get in a laundrette or a kind of dry cleaning place and uh, proceeds to stab him, doesn't she, in the, in the face. She does. Uh, it, and then makes her break for it. She does. And, and, and she, then I think. Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, that's the bit where um, she unmasks him. That's this. Uh, no, that comes a bit later. Him. Oh, does it? Okay. okay yeah. Fine. So, no, she, she gets Lindsay and Tommy and says, it's me run out and get help and they run out of the street and Dr. Lewis sees them. And then you're look, the camera is looking at her and Michael, Michael Myers, Myers is lying down in the background and you see him sit up. Sit up. Yeah. That's, that's, that is one of the scariest moments for me. And it's that kind of evil can't die kind of trope in horror films where he just, no matter what you do, he just keeps coming. Yeah. And that's, so they're struggling and that's where she unmasks him. And it's possibly the thing that kind of saves her is he's sort of, going back to that idea of the mask being really important to him kind of performing this task, he like immediately wants to get it back on. He doesn't want to be revealed. And that gives Dr. Loomis a moment to shoot him and then shoot him another six times. And so I'd read, uh, again, IMDB as your friend, I'd read that he is shot seven times. Oh. Of course he was only, he was only carrying a, uh, what do you call it? A gun that would have six bullets but I've, I went back and watched it, and it is only six times. He only fires six shots. So he fires one shot, uh, Michael Myers like staggers back, and then another five shots ring out. So it was only ever six shots. So whatever IMDb, 
I think it's been a person on the kind of community forum yeah. type thing, uh, but it's not factual. That's some fake news. Yes, people. you've got to. <laughs> you have to check the credibility of your sources. <laughs> uh, well, he falls out the window. We see him as an audience lying there, but by the time Doctor Loomis looks over the the uh, window ledge, he is gone, and we have what I think is a really great closer and something that sets this up because we know that it's going to be a sequel and a sequel again, and a sequel again, is that we finish on this kind of point of view shot again, the way that we started with the heavy breathing, looking at the house and then it cuts and it's the end of the film. And I think it's such a great way that really starts and ends in exactly the same way. And sets us up as a an audience to be like, what will he do next? Uh, well, we should start wrapping up. Um, so before we do, I'd love to know, was there a campus line or moment of this film for you? There's a lot of references to um, the boogeyman uh, in, in the film. And of course, there's very bit towards it. And we haven't mentioned it once yet, but uh, Tommy mentions it umpteen times. Um, again, uh, so does Laurie. It's almost that signposting for this, what they hope is going to become this iconic um, horror movie tagline. And it's actually really corny, in my humble opinion. So, yeah, that, that reference to the, uh, was that the boogeyman? And then Dr. Loomis, something along the lines of, yes, that was the boogeyman. Or, you know, <laughs> it's really cringe-worthily kind of uh ill thought out uh, it must have taken them about five minutes and i'm maybe being generous to be fair that's my camp camp moment but i think uh, the, the children in particular were very camp as like an, an insertion into this because there was a bit of like they were a bit silly they were a bit sassy um i i i, I enjoyed sort of how they, the role that they played, because there was a bit of, they were aware of things, but they also weren't aware of things. And so they, they operated in a different place to everyone else and allowed us to have moments of, of camp kind of humor or silliness. Um, do you have a scariest moment moment in this? Yeah. Um, I can't remember the phrase you you've coined. What's the phrase you call, uh, call it where the, the kind of jump out the scheme. Oh, yeah, the, 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 the kind of jump scares, yeah. Jump scares. Um, to me, it's that bit where um, Laurie enters the bedroom, her friend's sprawled out, there's the headstone, uh, and then uh, the uh, boyfriend and his torso, but it's not quite finished. Uh, and then at the very end, you know that Michael's just lurking there in the shadows. For me, that's the bit where, um, again, you would not have seen me for dust. <laughs> you would have been out of it. Absolutely. Now, now, the whole reason I have people on this podcast is to to classify a film on the camp scary scale. So it's a it's a scale of of classification, not a scale of value. So the numbers are purely to show where it lands on that scale. Uh, so it's from Divine Camp to Pure Terror. Where do you think this film lands for you? Uh, I'm I'm certainly edging on the uh, towards uh, Pure Terror. So if if um, Pure Terror is what a ten on the Richter scale and um, <laughs> Divine Camp's a zero on the Richter scale. Uh, I'm probably somewhere about an eight, uh, reading towards the, the scare camp. And I think, you know, we, we spoke about it earlier. If we take away the soundtrack, this movie's maybe not got it. But I think uh, the two combined, the soundtrack and the quite prescriptive, methodical kind of almost uh, horror by numbers elements to it, to me, uh, and that uh, extra sort of addition of uh, element of realism, this could happen. Uh, and has happened and will happen again. Um, to me, that's what really uh, pushes it towards that scary element. Yeah. So potentially so sort of one from the pure terror end of this scale is predominantly scary, but just incidentally camp. So they haven't purposely made anything camp, but there are just some moments of levity, you know, whether it's Laurie and her friends at the beginning or, or sort of the sass from those little kids. Um it's a, yeah, I, I feel like it fits there for me too. It, 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 it is at its heart a good scary movie. And I think for me, like a good scary movie always has to have some camp to it because that's how you 
get the, the audience relax, to relax so that you can scare them. <laughs> Thank you, Fraser, for joining me for an episode of Camp Scary and Squee. It was really great to talk about Halloween. Um, uh, we didn't talk about Jamie Lee Curtis as much as I thought we would as two gay men who are obsessed <laughs> with Scream Queens. But... <laughs> Um, but it was really great to have you on and to talk about this film. Uh, for those of you at home, you can follow Camp Scary and Squee on Instagram and Twitter by going to at Camp Scary Pod. If you have questions or suggestions, you can email campscarysquee at gmail.com. And make sure to rate and review Camp Scary and Squee so other horror fans can find us. Thank you for joining us. And remember, don't scream. They'll hear you. I find it funny because you say, um, you say pegging it, pegging it, which. Does that mean shagging in Australia? Well, you no. Peg someone, you shag someone. No, no, it doesn't. Well, it kind of does, but no, not not quite. Um, pegging is where a woman puts on a strap on and fucks out, like fucks them. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not what we call it here. <laughs> so, like, you're going, well, they're pegging some, it, and I was like, your listeners will be quite uh, taken by that notion. <laughs> A lot of folk get pegged in this movie. You may find it a uh, sales source. <laughs> yeah, people will be like, oh my God, <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> so...